Welcome everybody to Between the Lines, a podcast produced by the Louis Jacobs Foundation and committed to Rabbi Jacobs's belief that the quest for Torah is itself Torah. My name is Simon Eder, and each week I am joined by a special guest who helps us to deconstruct that week's parasha, exploring new paths on the quest for Torah. And it's wonderful as we continue our quest through Shemot and this week address the parsha of Bo to welcome once again Rabbi Nelly Altenberger, who joined us just a few weeks ago towards the end of Bereshit. Rabbi Altenberger became the new spiritual leader of Congregation Adat Yisrael in Middletown in the summer of 2020. Born and raised in Brazil, Rabbi Altenberger received her Bachelor of Arts degree in Hebrew language and literature from the University of Sao Paulo, and also a Master of Arts in Rabbinic Studies in 2004 from the Ziegler School of Rabbinic Studies, and was ordained in 2006. Wonderful to have you back with us. Maybe to begin as we approach this week, of course, the plagues. What is a plague according to the Torah? Uh, thanks, uh, Simon, for having me here. So if you're going to look at plagues and if you look at any chastisement in Torah in general, any chastisement is a message from God. So, If you're going to go to that, you could say that all those plagues carry within their messages to a audience. If you're going to go internally looking for personal meaning, then everything that you consider to be bad that happens to you should be an opportunity to turn inward and to turn and to check in your relationship with God. The word makah, which is how the text describes those plagues, actually means beatings. And so you have there a message or an idea of war or of what or of uh, disputes already and i think that when you look at plagues in that sense then you can understand or try to understand what exactly those plagues are doing not just to the egyptians but but to us as readers what are the messages that those things are carrying to us as readers you prompt a thought that as we read in the haggadah Rabbi Yehuda was accustomed, I think, to, to giving the plagues mnemonics, the first three, the second three, and then the last four being amalgamated into a specific context. What is strange, do you find, about that? Uh, look, why, right, why would Rabbi Yehuda create those acronyms? It's three words that don't really have, they don't make, they, they don't have a meaning on themselves. The Tzach, Adash, and Be'ahav. And the question that everyone should when they're reading the Haggadah is, why would a rabbi create a three acronyms for something that is fairly easy to remember, which is the art of the plagues? Uh, get any child to to say the plagues, and if they have a minimum Jewish instruction, of course, they will. The ten plagues is something that you sing, and then, so why does he have to make that break 
And I think he's already trying to point out something about the structure of how the story of the plagues is presented to us. The Haggadah inserts it in there as a, a prompt, really, for discussion. Because you have to remember, that's the point of having a Seder, is not just to read the Haggadah, but to he- read the Haggadah as something that gives us a meaning. Right Now, if you're going to go and read and look for uh, the beginnings for each of those three, three mnemonics he, he puts, what you have, is that they all have to do with to know. You have to know, or someone has to know that I, God, am God. And uh, later on in Jewish thought, this is going to uh, lead to the idea that awareness, knowing, right, being aware, is itself in exile in Egypt. So if you're going to look at what is the point of those plagues, at the way in the beginning of the story, in chapter 7 in Exodus, you have that the plagues are going to be because all Egyptians shall know that I am Yudhevavim. But then as we read the story, in the entire arc of the story, what you're going to, to realize is also that you have the Jews actually needing to learn who God is. Because if you're going to remember, you have the whole thing about, let us go back to Egypt. We know later in the story that there are people already in Egypt saying to Moses, leave us alone. It's better for us here than to die in the desert. So showing a lack of awareness, a lack of uh, bitachon, reliance on God. And so I think that's part of what Rabbi Yehud is trying to call our attention to. There's a question of awareness. You have to know, right? This is to know. There's a pedagogical thing here, right? There are, if you're going to look closely, you're also going to see that each of those plagues that begins, the sequences, they are introduced with a command to, from God to Moses. saying, so you stay, station yourselves near something in the morning. So each of those are also there. So Rabbi Yehud is trying to show that if you're going to look at this closely, slowly, you're going to notice that there are structures already there. Look forward to addressing some of the things that you've just raised. Perhaps maybe to go, first of all, to the different contexts in which we hear about the plagues. It, it feels that the purpose of the plagues does vary in some of those different contexts. And I wonder if you could maybe share some of your different assessments of these. Uh, uh, I don't, what do you mean by contexts? Uh, like just like the setting for different plagues results in different purposes behind their execution so it's uh, like when you're going to look at the narrative itself you you have you, you're going to notice that the the narrative is pre-embellished and pre-crafted each place so so things are going to happen outside Moses or or Aaron 
smiting the river or using the dirt. Are all those moments are going to point out to the plagues being those uh, messages from God. Then different plagues are going to have different messages, I think. There are ideas that you're going to see an overarching message in the entirety, and there are ideas that you see a, a message in, in each of those. When you look at other pieces, not just Torah, right? when you look at Psalms, there are two Psalms that mention the plagues, and both of them mention only seven plagues, which is an interesting thing, meaning maybe those are more important for the composer of the psalm, that tradition is, is David, but, and they're more important. We mention a little bit of that in the Haggad, when we say, oh, he sent anger, wrath, indignation, trouble, and deadly messengers, which are, it's a piece of Psalm 78. And the rabbis are going to help you in the Haggadah, proving that those five words actually mean ten, ten plagues. Because the rabbis are not so comfortable with saying, oh, maybe the Psalter forgot a few plagues or didn't think that those all the plagues were as important. And there are people who say, no, those seven plagues are more, uh, were what happened. There's a kernel of truth somewhere. And and I think that's an important piece for us to, to think about, what, which 10 is a very important number. In, in the Jewish tradition, as seven is. So you can imagine that something happened in Egypt, and then people later on embellished the narrative either to get to ten or to get to seven, right? Uh, because those are, are important numbers. I, do, I didn't find any text, I don't know, only mentioning three plagues or five plagues. I think that's an important piece to, to think about. Fascinating to understand how narrative um, evolves, perhaps. Different explanations, of course, for the plagues have been given by different scholars as a means maybe of justifying the plagues and so on. One, one of them, perhaps most obviously, being a kind of case for the plagues as natural consequences. Could you maybe speak to that and share what these scholars have in mind? Uh, sure. So all this I learned with uh, my teacher, Zioni Zavid, who is a wonderful gentleman and a scholar. He's really great. And this idea is floated in the late 1950s, right? That somehow, if you're going to, you could, according to this idea, imagine that the first plague is red clay that, sweep, that, that is swept down into the Nile from Ethiopian highlands, and that transforms the river into red and makes the water undrinkable. If you think of all, right now, I'm reminded of an ecological disaster that happened in Brazil, that a refinery had this toxic mud, and the levee simply broke and destroyed a couple of rivers, which is really bad and killed all, all the animals in, in the water, and the water wasn't drinkable and so on. And it's the same idea. This maybe not being caused by a refinery, but uh, being caused by, by a natural disaster some, somehow. That uh, makes the, the, the death of fish and makes the water undrinkable. And then 
the rotting fish end up crowding the frogs out of swamps and water. Because if there is something that is, is dying, what is alive tends to leave. And then, of course, the, because the dead fish carry, would carry anthrax, according to this theory, the frogs go to the house and look for areas that are cool, cooler, such as houses and ovens and so on. And then they die because they have this disease. And that would be the second plague. Then once they are infected with this disease, then lice and flies, notice that here, if you're going to look at the Arovis flies, you're going against the grain of the Jewish tradition that says it's wild animals. But if you're going to look at this as flies and lice, then of course, they all multiply because the frogs are really smelly and they bring out all animals who would, like flies and so on. But because the, everything is infected, then it infects the cattle. And people are going to have these boils as, um, as the cattle would die, and, but people would just, quote-unquote, develop the boils. So through that, we went through plagues three, four, five, and six. And that would finish kind of that body of explanation for those plagues. And seven, eight, and nine end up being related to climatic conditions in Egypt. You'd have hailstorms that would occur in Upper Egypt and sometimes in, in Lower Egypt that could account for the hail. But locusts are very common in, the, in that region. And so having a plague of locusts just makes sense. Now, even today, you can go on YouTube and see swarms of locusts, even before they are able to fly, eating everything as they pass. It's, a, it's a, really an incredible sight in that sense. And, and according to that, then the darkness would be a dust storm coming from Libya. And then the 10th plague, you're pressed. Even, I would say, even the, those last three, it's more, I think, the people making those theories are trying to fit something because then we, you get into the question of the firstborn and why would only the firstborn die? And they say it was not just the firstborn. It looked like the firstborn just because of infant mortality. I don't know if that's true. That's poor, a poor explanation because that last one is really a strange. You can't really explain that one in natural ways, I think. So that is the. That's the one above explanation, perhaps. Yeah, look, I always think that all those things, even if you can explain them naturally in those natural cycles, you still have to explain how come Moses was in the right place at the right time. Doing the, the, and I think that if you need a miracle, if you need to explain everything naturally, it's fine. But if you need a miracle, the real miracle is that Moses knew of all those cycles and knew when, when they're going to happen and tells Pharaoh when they're going to happen and so on. And that's an interesting. Ch changing track, perhaps. Mm -hmm. Completely. There's another possible explanation for the plagues, really as a kind of narrative to 
undo creation and a and a war against the Egyptian pantheon. Do you see that this might be a fitting explanation? Do, do the plagues fit into into that framework? This is Zionizevit's explanation, which I find very compelling in the sense that I think he respects the internal vision of the text as the Torah. If you're going to read closely every plague and at the same time read closely the story of creation in the Torah, then you're going to find a very interesting connections, verbal, in words. And the first one, the first call to, to do that really is found in the uh, face-off, the first one, between Aaron and the Pharaoh's courtiers. They're called Hatamim uh, Magician, which is the story of the staff. Right, we like to say that the staff became a serpent. Right, that's usually how we translate. The word though is tanim, and tanim can also mean a crocodile, or if you're or on or monster. So many translations, if you're going to open at the beginning in Genesis, say that the, the text says God also created the tani, taninim gedolim. And the translation, usually there is great sea monsters. But the Aaron's staff is described as a tanim as well. And so this ability of transforming the staff into this animal, serpent or, or, or a crocodile, and back, is already found in other Egyptian texts. And that is part of what Dionysavid uh, brings in in his reading that you do have this wax crocodile story in which by magical spells, a crocodile made, in, made of wax becomes a living crocodile and back again. And so you could, you already have that as a kernel of possibility that the text is not only talking about this story as a fight, but it's also uh, a very specific fight. And that fight is going to be against the Egyptian practices in general and pantheon. It's one of the downsides of this is that there are many gods in the Egyptian pantheon. I think because the Egyptian story takes so long, thousands of years, what you have is that they have thousands of gods. I want to say that someone counted something above 15,000 gods in Egypt. So it's easy to find the god of these and the god of that. Um, so the overarching idea is that a god creates everything according to our, our tradition, according to the, the beginning of the story of Genesis, and therefore God can, re, can undo all those things as well in the plagues. And that's what God does. So when the rivers become, so God created the great Taninim, monsters or serpents. At the same time, when, when the waters become blood, what did God do in the beginning of the story? God gathers the waters. The frogs, you have swarming as your word, and in the creation story, the waters are swarming with things. 
God is creating every beast, every kind. So all of those things are being undone. All those life forms are being undone. The same thing, the locust and the vegetation, everything is created by God. And then darkness and the death of the firstborn, which are the last two plagues, connect to the very beginning and the very end of that story. Because God creates the world, separating light from darkness. And what is the last thing that God creates? The human beings. So then, of course, God can decide that those human beings are not going to, to exist anymore. In that reading, the only exception to that is boils. And the boils then, according to Zionis Avid, get are connected to the laws of purity and impurity of skin diseases that consume a, a lot of verses in Leviticus. And apparently was something also very serious for Egyptians in general. They were very, Egyptian culture was very aware of the body. And they would take their hair out, they would right, do depilations of all sorts of ways. Because the skin was something very important to them. And so having boils is quite shocking, both for Egyptians and for Jews later on, so that all those things would be connected with this idea that God is the one behind all of it. Which... R- really fascinating argument, and, and thank you for sharing from your teacher, uh, Zioni Zevet. I, I think there's maybe a, another explanation, maybe a more kind of focused one around a polemic that the plagues like give to two basic tenets of Egyptian religion, Pharaoh as king and priest, and then the need for an intermediary. It, do, do you see that as complementing what we've just spoken to? Because apparently in a, the Egyptian religion, what you have is that Pharaoh's job, remember he's the son of a deity, from there comes the word Ramses, or the name Ramses, the son of Ra, and so on. Pharaoh is the son of God, and therefore... He is the responsible to keep the balance uh, that uh, is called ma'at in in Egyptian, uh, according to to, uh, uh, people who study those things. And uh, uh, what this whole thing would be showing Pharaoh that no, he doesn't control anything. Pharaoh is dethroned in that sense. Uh, because if God is uh, everywhere and God listens to every person, Pharaoh is not more of of a person than anyone else. And and uh, and I think that's a big change that um, Jewishness is going to bring to the world. That God listens to you, and you don't need. An intermediary. There is no one who can talk to God better about your needs than you, because you know where you're going through. And I think that's an important message. And if you go back to the idea that every human being is created in the image of God, then social hierarchy that has one person being more godly than everyone else, and certainly way more godly than the slave is an anathema to the 
But as a rabbi, sometimes I get people ask, pray for this and pray for that. And I always say, look, I'll pray for you and I'll pray for your loved one, but you should pray too. Because you, you know your difficulties and the difficulties of people whom you love better than I do. But the fact that I'm a rabbi doesn't give me any special powers. The fact that I'm a groupie doesn't give me any perks with God. I'm a person just like you are. And I think the same thing happens here in this story. So really an invitation for direct access. That's the compelling but, message. And embracing the lack of control. I think that's something that we uh, most people don't like to think, that they don't have control. But I think that like you have control on about 5% of what happens because all you know you have control on your, on your emotions, your reactions, but you don't have control on anything, anything else. And I think you have to look at your life and accept that's the, a fact. Pharaoh doesn't control anything any more than any of us control, controls anything. We can only control ourselves. And that, that already is, is a big request, I think. If you can control yourself, you're already seen as a hero, according to, to Birkenwald. Sounds good. And plenty of new insights as we explore the plagues this year and, of course, bring to our Seder tables down the line in a couple of months. Thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thank you, Simon. This was wonderful. Thank you. Great to have you. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You can find more information about all of our work on our sites, louisjacobs.org and jewishquest.org. Do tune in again next week as we continue our journey through Shemot together. Mm-hmm.